Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture, and our topic today is part of our Global Perspective series. And the nation that we're focusing on is New Zealand, and I have two guests who I visit with um, regularly every other, and now I don't know what to say, summer or winter, because it's summer here in the U.S., but it's winter down there when I go. And we've reversed it now because they're entering into um, into summer as we record, and we're entering into winter. But Russell Thorpe, and, who's with the community churches in New Zealand, and Richard Fountain, who also works in, in the same area uh, and is a DTS grad, are my guests. Uh, Russell, uh, welcome to the table. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here, and uh, good to be a part of a conversation about the church in New Zealand. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and Richard, thank you for being a part as well. My pleasure, Daryl. All right. So let's just dive right in. Let's talk about New Zealand a little bit. M- most people have heard, if they know anything about New Zealand, they probably connect it with Lord of the Rings and the, and the topography and just the beauty of the country, which is world-renowned. Um, uh, but tell us a little bit ab- about the country. Uh, it's actually not a very large country in population. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. About 5 million people, and uh, where we are in Auckland, both Richard and I, is about uh, 1.8 to 2 million. Okay, so so there are two islands, the North Island and the South Island, and Auckland is the dominant city in the country. Um, uh, that's almost, what, 40% of the population in the Auckland area? Uh, Correct. And uh, much much of the country is is rural in terms of uh, in terms of its uh, topography and that kind of thing. And I know you're famous not just for your people, but Richard, what else is is New Zealand known for other than the uh, uh, five million people who inhabit the two islands? Yeah, well, farming is really the backbone of the economy, as long as well as manufacturing and tourism. But yeah, the, the joke is we have. Um, you know, more sheep than New Zealand than New Zealand than people. It's about twenty-six million sheep. Was well, seventy million sheep. So, you know, farming has been a big thing in New Zealand and uh five million people, that's uh you know, pretty small by comparison. You may be the first country that keeps a census on sheep beyond a census on people. But anyway. well, the, the tourists see it uh, when they come, and they're amazed at the beauty of the of the countryside and the the diversity of the countryside. And and you're right, it is. It's like Lord of the Rings at the right season, um, and it's uh, it's beautiful with rainforests and, and uh, farmland and mountains and lakes. So, you know, everything's on display. Yeah, it is. It's a, it is a beautiful country. I remember visiting, uh, I guess, a cow farm at, uh, uh, where milk production was, was big. You all actually supply a lot of the milk for the entire Oceania region, right, and extending into Asia. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, there are countries like India that, you know, produce more dairy products 
you know, than New Zealand and America. But we we export all our good stuff overseas. So yeah, we we're an export nation. Yeah, okay. so we're very much world focused in that regard. Yeah, yeah very good. Well, um, so let's talk a little bit about the history of the country and 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 kind of its background. Uh, it's a very distinct kind of history, Russell, in terms of um, in terms of its origins and also in terms of the. Uh, what was formerly um, Europe, people of European descent in the country, distinct from Australia, is that right? In terms of its, uh, in terms of its roots. Well, certainly, um, the the people that inhabited these islands were uh, from probably from Hawaii, Hawaiiki, and they came to New Zealand in canoes. Uh, the Moriori and then the Maori, and the Maori. Um, are the dominant race of those two, and they have uh, they continue today as being quite dominant. They have a language called Maori, Maori language, and uh, yeah, it was probably around the eighteen uh, early eighteen forties when uh, Europeans and before that, of course, Europeans had come, but where there was a treaty because uh, Maori were fighting amongst themselves and they were fighting with the British colonialists that were here at the time and uh, so there was a, a group of Christians related to the Wilberforce group in the UK who actually managed to help uh, put together the Treaty of Waitangi and Waitangi is the uh, a place up north that was the middle of uh, Maori uh, chieftain uh, folk who, who had influence in the country and that Treaty of Waitangi is very important even today and it's meant that there's been quite a good relationship between Maori and what we call Pakiha, which are the white-skinned people, the Europeans, obviously. So that's a little bit of background for New Zealand. Uh, and Christianity grew very quickly amongst Maori uh, for a long time. Uh, it's now in a bit of a recession, but we believe that God is at work amongst our Maori folk again. And uh, they will help the church in New Zealand, I think, in the future. You know, it's interesting when you get off the plane and you fly in from the States into New Zealand in the Auckland airport, you are immediately greeted with, with two languages. And uh, um, and then, of course, and, and we're, we're going to touch on all the New Zealand uh, – how uh, can I say the particulars of New Zealand? The haka, which of course is associated with rugby now in the All Blacks, um, is uh, really has Maori roots, doesn't it, Richard? Yeah, absolutely, um, it, it does. And um, the, um, the 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 Maori chiefs and the Maori um, people had a very rich culture and still do. Um, sadly, it has been suppressed, um, but. But uh, Tereo, the language, is, is now being uh, encouraged and is, and is flourishing again. But, yeah, uh, Haka was uh, one of those cultural oddities uh, for Europeans. Um, but I'll just add, it was really interesting, the British intervention in New Zealand, which it really was, I mean, when you're coming as a sort of colonial sort of group, um, it was um, to establish government and, um, and to bring law to the British you know, subjects who were coming into New Zealand. Um, and as a, and in decades later, it was going to be a tsunami of, of uh, settlers. Um, and it was always intended to establish uh, law and order and also equality uh, amongst uh, the British subjects and also the, the, the native people, the uh, indigenous people. Um, but it was never intended to sort of suppress their culture um, or, or treat them as subservient. And you know, just by way of comparison, um, in the uh, the British Empire had 
had a lot of treaties with uh, indigenous people. You can think of Canada, you can think of West Africa, uh, and you can think of Australia, but in New Zealand, it really was quite a unique new system of, of dealing with indigenous people. And part of that, part of that arrangement was to preserve um, the local governorship of, um, of the, uh, the, the tribal leaders. And so it was working towards peace and it was working towards a harmony rather than sort of like a, an upper state and a lower state um, and, a, and a hierarchy of, of humanity. Um, and so it really was quite significant um, at the time in that regard. And it's somewhat so, and the point you're making is this is somewhat exceptional and has marked uh, New Zealand culture um, ever since. Yeah, absolutely. And even our cousins, we, we love the Aussies. Um, they, they, uh, they're, they're great rivals and great friends, but even in, amongst the Aborigine people there, there, there wasn't, the British um, did not encourage, um, um, they certainly didn't impose assimilation, but they certainly didn't encourage the people to flourish. And so it was, it was very much a kind of separateness from the Aborigine people, whereas the, uh, the language of the treaty was, is very, very unique, and, and it's a language of covenant. Um, and, and the Māori people today fully recognise that language, that model, um, that concept of um, bringing uh, two different communities, two different groups of people together. And you can imagine the, uh, you can imagine the, the difference. I mean, we were joking about sheep, but um, when the early settlers came, they brought sheep and cattle with them eventually. Māori people had never seen sheep, you know. So, you know, when Samuel Marsden preached the first uh, sermon on Christmas morning in 1814, you know, he preached from Luke chapter 2, and he was talking about the good news of great joy that the, that, uh, the, the angels gave the shepherds. Uh, you can imagine the people thinking, shepherds? You know, what are, you know, we don't even know what sheep are. You know, so there was that cultural, you know, disconnect in terms of understanding a lot of concepts, including, you know, you know, what does it mean to have sovereignty, you know, for the, for the British Empire when they are sort of like working amongst themselves as different separate tribes. So Christianity was actually pivotal in helping both preserve the local culture and also develop it for the new people that were, were, were coming and were going to be mixing together. So I can imagine an early sermon on Jesus as the good shepherd would be translated, Jesus the good what? Yeah, <laughs> Russell. That's right. I mean, that, that I mean that just shows the some degree the cultural di- distance, and yet, as Richard's already alluded to, the role of Christianity is kind of a a cultural glue um, that allowed um, the country to grow and function and flourish is is important in the development of the history of of New Zealand. Yeah, that, that's very true. I think um, it's important for us to understand that concept of covenant, uh, which was at the back of the thinking of those who were putting that treaty together. And I think the early the Maori chiefs, uh, they were intelligent people, and they understood all of this as well. And it, it, this is one of the things that as we reflect in the second half, really, on the state of the church in New Zealand, identity politics, uh, as in the US, is an issue here. And it's important that, uh, you know, un- unfortunately, it, it's become this thing about Christianity versus secularism or whatever it is. But if we talk about covenant, 
and agreements to work together, that's very much a part of humanity and the importance going forward of Christianity also within the culture going forward in New Zealand. Yeah, this is one of the fascinating things about why I enjoy visiting New Zealand uh, is, is the way in which they handle some of these um, issues and tensions that it can exist between people, and yet watching uh, the situation in New Zealand and the way in which there is uh, cooperation and recognition, obviously still being worked on, but still present and and really being um, being focused on in some ways that allows for for progress as opposed to uh, strict opposition. It's it's interesting to watch as an outsider from a distance and to, and to have discovered in the conversations that I have as I move from various countries. Uh, you know, I visit I visit Australia and New Zealand. I'm in India. I'm in South Africa. You know, they all have very distinct histories, including at a at a societal and racial level with very different backgrounds. And the contrasts really do jump out to someone as you move from place to place. So let, let's let's turn. Let me ask you some other questions. What else would you say is distinctive about New Zealand? Um, uh, you've mentioned the that you're an export country, that there's um, that there is this this um, ra- pursuit of of racial recognition, mutual racial recognition in the country. What else would you say is distinctive about New Zealand, Russell? I think New Zealanders are um, have always been seen to be uh, very good at improvising. Um, you know, they left the UK, they left other places of the world to come and settle here and we have this uh, this wire called number eight wire. It's just a certain thick wire, and um, farmers learned how to do a lot of things with that number eight wire. It's just an expression, really, of us as Kiwis being creative and able to make, uh, you know, bring solutions to issues, uh, engineering issues, all sorts of issues because of our smallness and in terms of population. But the other side of that is that. Um, Actually, New Zealanders punch above their weight in terms of uh, uh, new inventions and uh, all sorts of things that they have brought to the table for the world. Um, Rutherford helped; uh, did he, he helped split the atom, didn't he? So uh, he's a Kiwi, um, and so uh, there's a whole range of things, including just recently um, the ability to uh, to beam power from a solar setup. Um, from space into into the world is is the the people that are in front of that uh, science development are Kiwis and uh, they've just been over in, in Europe working with people around that so it, it's an interesting country from that perspective um, a lot of creativity yeah I'm, I'm again I'm going to smile and bring in sports the creativity that you had in winning the America's Cup taking it from the states at one point. Uh, and the innovation that went into the design of the boat kind of a, could be a metaphor for the creativity that uh, that New Zealanders have and ha- and the contributions that they've made in a variety of areas in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah. so um, what primarily? So is. New Zealand primarily an agricultural country. I mean, how, it sounds like it's a mix of technology and agriculture. Is that is that a fair summary, or is there anything else I'm missing in terms of the general kind of social climate in the country in terms of its economics? Richard, you you answer that one. 
<laughs> um, uh, there's general manufacturing. There's innovation. A lot of innovation is, is being talked about in terms of technology and that sort of thing. Um, you know, electronics and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, the, a lot of the industry is based around um, service industries. You know, for you know um, power generation or um, you know running the country in, in, in a unique way and that sort of thing. So um, tourism, tourism is the biggest thing. The, the other thing about being a small island, you know, roughly, you know, landmass size of um, Great Britain, um, uh, is is that like I said, we're we're forward facing, outward facing, and and really the ocean or Oceania, Oceania is just as important as the landmass. So I mean, Australia is the big is this is the smallest continent, but it's not an island; it's massive. Um, but we're just a, a little island, but. But uh, the people and the diversity um, of residents now come from, you know, all through the Pacific. And there is that definitely that boating uh, flavour, that motif of, of sailing and and, uh, and travel. Um, you know, so we have Tongans and Samoans. Uh, we're, the, we're kind of like the capital of, um, of, of the Pacific Islands for some of the Samoan and Tongan, um, you know, countries and that sort of thing. So... Yeah, very, very multicultural, very um, ocean-focused, a um, lot of lot of boats and that sort of thing as well. Yeah. yeah, I talk to many Americans, and New Zealand is often on their travel bucket list of hoping to get to uh, at some point in their lives uh, because of the, one, the reputation of the islands. You know, it's interesting that you compared the size of New Zealand to the U.K. Most people don't realize that Australia is actually – as big, if not slightly bigger, than the United States in land mass. So these are two substantial um, countries in terms of size located in a completely different part of the world uh, f uh, from the U.S., and yet, um, you know, most people uh, know – they probably know more about Australia than they do New Zealand, but but both countries have, have managed to etch their way into the consciousness of many North Americans. Um, Okay, so let me let me shift gears a little bit. Uh, you've talked about the multiculturalism and the fact that people are coming from other islands. So, how many different languages are you dealing with in the country um, in terms of its current population? Uh, how how multicultural? I guess is what I'm asking is how multicultural is New Zealand beyond the indigenous tribes and the European presence that's come. You've mentioned the influence of the Pacific Islands because you're surrounded by lots of little islands. Um, talk a little bit about the makeup of the country demographically beyond the five million. Probably uh, the most. Go ahead, Russell. The largest. The largest group is probably uh, the Indian population. Um, uh, I think Indians are spread all around the world. It's no different here. Uh, Auckland is an interesting place. Only one in four Aucklanders were born in New Zealand. Hmm. So um, including myself, I was born in Papua New Guinea. Um, my parents are missionaries, of course, but that that's reflective of the country. Um, and so... But the languages, really, we're a bicultural nation in terms of language. There's English and Maori. Um, and, of course, then we have a large population of Indians who speak their languages and then Chinese. Uh, and we have a lot of immigrant groups that have come here from places like Bangladesh, uh, places like um, Myanmar and uh, Ethiopia, all those things. I think every country is reflecting that 
input from other nations now. New Zealand's no different, even though we're so far away from everyone, everyone else. And, Eng- and Auckland's been growing in part because it's been drawing people from from these variety of locations, or is there a lot of rural to urban movement as well, or a combination of the two? Yeah, it'd be a combination of both those things, okay. yeah. So, um, so it's a real mix. So let's talk about Christianity in, in New Zealand, shift gears a little bit, and uh, can you give us a, a, a quick overview of the history of Christianity, and then we'll talk about what the current status of Christianity is. Um, but um, uh, came, obviously came with the Europeans. That's about all I know. Let's pick up from there. <laughs> Who got um, Go ahead. I, I guess my uh, my reflections are that um, yeah, Christianity was a very important part of New Zealand uh, in its early days, um, and I think the the ratio of the church of Christians who of people who went to church was a lot higher, of course, than it is today. The Catholic Church was and still is the largest grouping of Christians, uh, and then the Anglican Church would have been uh, the next largest. Uh, to Presbyterian, Methodists, and so on. And then the evangelical side was a smaller portion back in the early days, but it's grown these days to be a much much larger portion. It still doesn't beat the Catholics. Um, And, of course, then growing from there has been the growth of Pentecostalism in New Zealand as it has grown elsewhere, and independent Pentecostal churches have become large. That sort of waned a little now, but it's still a very important part of the makeup of, of Christianity here. So in, in distinction from uh, Australia, which originally was founded, I think, as a penal colony, if I have my Australian history right, uh, where did the impulse for Europeans to come to New Zealand come from, uh, Richard? Uh, well, it, it came from um, the Anglican Church, um, mm the Presbyterian Church uh, and, and those that were part of the, um, the the Christian missions around the world that were going into India and, and that were going into um, a lot of the Pacific Islands as well. So so the missionaries that came, I sort of mentioned Samuel Marsden. Um, there was there was another character who was involved in in the Napoleonic Wars, um, you know, back in the uh, in the late uh, early 1800s, um, converted or he became a priest and that sort of thing, an Anglican priest. And so he he sort of joined the efforts to come down um, and sort of bring uh, Christianity to to uh, to the islands. Um, so yeah, it was very much instrumental. Some of the key people we we alluded to with the um, which were against slavery and and those that actually wrote the laws in England. Um, to abolish slavery, the actual uh, the abolition of slavery act, um, were relatives of some of the um, influences in in the forming of the treaty. So, so you could say that the DNA of sort of like um, what is true Christian true Christianity, what is what does Christian community look like was was right right there at the beginning in terms of uh, working with uh, the people. So it wasn't just a a, a preaching message. Um, but it was, it was very much how do we how do we live as human beings as well, um, and and so that was that was a strong element um, from from the church at that time. So um, I, and again, go ahead, go ahead. And, yeah, and again, the, the contrast was you know are, are we going for slavery or is there something better um, on the shelf for us here? 
Interesting. So, so really, the, uh, my guess would be there would be two motivations for people coming from Europe um, to New Zealand. One would be economic, and the other would be uh, in terms of mission. And I'm I'm assuming that that explains the Catholic presence in the country as well. That it was part of this missionary outreach of of churches in general to reach parts of the world where the gospel had not gone before. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, and, and there's just an important point um, about the Catholic Church. I mean, if you go back to some of the papal bulls, there's a there's a thing called um, discover, doctrine of discovery, and, and you know that was often associated with North America and how some of the Christianity there influenced um, the colonial sort of um, approach. Um, the Anglican Church really had a completely different approach, and I know it's it, it is debated, but but records show that the Anglican Church had a completely different approach, and there was no uh, doctrine of discovery, which was like, we will subjugate you to be Christians. It was very much a voluntary thing and very much um, uh, preaching the gospel, preaching the good news and show and tell, rather than sort of, you know, we're taking over your country. Um, and so right from the get-go of the early days, um, the language of Christianity was, this is good news, uh, this is how it works. Uh, this is who Jesus is, um, um, and this is this is what um, you know a relationship with God looks like. And uh, by the way, this is what relationships with one another ought to look like as well. Um, and and so that language of reconciliation, that language of that you know that Christ is our peace, who brings two two together as one, which is which is a major theme of Ephesians was was part of early mission emphasis, emphases, um, including things like education and giving, acknowledging the rights of um, Indigenous people to flourish and to, and to gain education and to gain skills, um, not as a competing culture, but um, as one of, of invitation into, you know, of tasting and seeing what, what European culture looked like and also learning, learning the other way. So, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm taking it by, by that overview that one of the points that you're making is in this early treaty that kind of brought the cultures together, um, that, that the influence there was primarily Protestant, or did the Protestant influence kind of dominate the way Christians approached New Zealand, whether they were Catholic or Protestant? No, it's predominantly Protestant, although the interesting thing, the Catholic Church were the first um, to bring in the printing press and print Bibles in Māori and Te Reo. So they were they were the ones who who you know handled the literature in a sense and and published published the Bible for for the native people. Um, but yeah, the the predominant church I think would have been Anglican in terms of the governance and and those ideas for developing the country. God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes 
no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Cat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, so now let's shift to um, kind of modern New Zealand. Um, uh, I don't know what the statistic is in New Zealand. I have some idea what the statistic is in Australia. I think the estimates are that about 6% of the population are evangelical, church-attending, Bible-believing people in Australia. What kind of number are we dealing with in New Zealand? Is it about that, lower, higher? Where are we? Um, there's a report that was written in Australia, but also in New Zealand called the McCrindle Report. Uh, and there's some interesting statistics that come out of that. So just to go through that very quickly, um, 35%. This was done, what, 2018, I think. So it's a little bit old, but it, we've had COVID in between. Um, no religion or spiritual belief, that's 35%. Um, Christianity, people put down that, that was uh, their faith, it was 33%. were spiritual but not religious, and then um, 12% were other religions. And out of that um, list of 33% uh, of Christianity, 16% said they'd go to church once a month. Hmm. Um, And we we think the figure's probably a little lower than that, actually. Uh, So I think around 7% of uh, those people would be evangelical Christians um, who go to church regularly. So that gives you a bit of an idea. Of, of it's not too dissimilar to Australia in many ways. Yeah, and and of course, again, one of the fascinating things for me visiting, of course, is that when you, when you're in Dallas, Texas, that the number of people who are uh, attending religious services in a weekend is is supposed to be close to half. Um, so that's obviously a huge difference between the two cultures. What do you think um, you learn as a Christian? being in the kind of environment where you clearly are a cultural minority. And you learn how to live in exile. That. Yeah. You learn how to live in exile. Okay. Um, you, you, yeah, you, it becomes – you have to have a theology of exile and uh, not see that as a bad thing, but see that as a good thing. Um, and not, you know, because there's no way we will become the majority uh, voice. We have to learn how to operate as a minority voice uh, and punch above our weight in terms of our influence as Christians. I think that's, um, and, and we're struggling with that to some extent, but there are some Christians who are making a wonderfully good impact in some churches. Okay, so the, the, so the challenge is, and, and particularly since uh, the large percentage that you talked about who don't have any faith at all, there really is... Um, if I can say it this way, a genuine secular religious divide in New Zealand um, that uh, that is present, even though, again, if you just take the people who have no religious orientation at all, they're also a minority, but it's evenly split. That's interesting. Um, so how did how did churches, Richard, how did churches try and face this this reality that you that you deal with, not just the difference between not having, you know, a, a large cultural numbers, but just coping with with the role that you have with so many neighbors who are different than yourself? Yeah, it's it's an interesting challenge. And in most most churches are focusing, it's not just preaching and the and teaching, although there are various degrees of of, of that, but but uh, the works that go on during the week and the connection with um, 
Christian trusts or Christian community outreach and that sort of thing. So it, it's very much credibility is seen, if if not through the message of Christianity, through the actions of Christians. So, you know, you've got the likes of, um, the, you know, not just World Vision or anything like that, but you've got food banks um, and you've got social concern and social care. And, uh, and, and so, you know, everybody is wrestling with how to help families. Everybody is wrestling with issues in the economy and that sort of thing. But I think a lot of Christians are, are recognized as, as doing something positive um, for those least um, you know, on, on the bottom rung and that sort of thing. So that's one way of doing it. Um, the, the other way is to emphasize, as we sort of said, it's not just about um, preaching and proclamation, um, but watching your tone and how you engage with people who um, might be opposed to your what would be considered ultra-conservative views or views of the past. This is the way society used to live in terms of family um, and ideas about gender and that sort of thing. So how, how do you engage with that and not coming across in a condemning way but um, seeking to engage in a positive way? That's, that's another way around it. Okay, you use the phrase Christian trust. Is the equivalent of that for us a Christian nonprofits or are those special kinds of organizations? Um, they are attempts by Christian local churches to take the church into the community. Um, so they are sort of, um, yeah, they're, they're charitable trusts that the government allows to be established. And uh, they go beyond, um, you know, the local sort of governance of the body and the, and the pastoral care of the body. They're sort of aimed, they have objects such as, you know, helping in education or helping the poor. Um, those kind of kind of things, and um, and they exist in in a bunch of different areas that address um, trauma, you know, social social needs, um, poverty, and that sort of thing. So they're, they're very practical ministries um, that are allowed to exist. Yeah. And and Russell, you work with the denomination uh, Community Churches, which is op- most people here would know as Open Brethren Churches. Um, what's the denominational um, kind of breakdown in the country? I mean, not necessarily specific, but in general, in terms of obviously Anglicans are a large group. Um, and who else? Who else will you find in the Protestant part of the of the community? And is there a general breakdown between Catholics and Protestants in terms of percentage? Uh, well, there is. Um, I can't give you the specific figures right now, but I think that the Baptists are a large group. Uh, I mean, the the Bre- Open Brethren were large, and we've reduced in numbers. We used to be larger in the early seventies, nineteen seventies, than the Baptists. The Baptists have taken over well and truly from us. Uh, we have Elam uh, churches. We have, uh, you know, uh, groups like the Lutheran Church are quite small in New Zealand. So, uh, and the Presbyterians are, are, are a bigger group, but not that much bigger really than us. Um, they've been struggling. The Anglican churches are struggling. They've got plenty of churches, but the numbers going are reducing quite remarkably, and they're struggling to find ministers and you know vicars for their churches. And so, there's becoming a lot more of a cross pollination actually between evangelical churches and even mainline churches who have, you know, um, a desire to preach the word and share the gospel. So I think that's become a common thing. In New Zealand, we're so small in number that uh, 
that we are not easily put into silos, if you like. Um, I think we, we are talking together a lot more than we used to. Yeah, I don't know if you want it. I think one of the things to reflect on for us in terms of our approach, back in the 1980s, we were strong on apologetics and those sort of things because we had a base of people who might have been brought up in Sunday school who were no longer in church and there was a common faith, understanding of the Christian faith. There was also a common um, angst against Christians. And that whole thing has changed quite remarkably with the, you know, the, the growth of the no non-religious or not Christian group. And now we're, it's not so much apologetics that will reach people arguing for the faith. It's more about what Richard was talking about. It's getting into the community and building bridges so the gospel can go over those bridges because there is very little understanding of the Christian faith. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, so there really is. A, in one sense, there's a lot more work to do, and uh, and there's not as much shared background culture. So you almost have to go from scratch, if I can say it that way, um, in terms of uh, getting people to see why Christianity um, uh, is helpful in in how you approach life and the way in which you engage both individually and as a community. Yeah. So Richard may have some reflections from that from a pastoral perspective, but... Uh, no, yeah. go ahead. Share those. <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, the, 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 the number of people who say, I'm spiritual but not religious, you know, they're basically saying, um, I, I've, I've tasted Christianity and I've moved on. You know, it's no longer working for me, you know. And, and part of the problem is um, that we live in such a, a prosperous area um, in the sense of, you know, it's a good life. There's, there's, there's a lot of freedoms. We're not, you know, we're not worried about being invaded by any country. You know, Russia is a long way away. <laughs> um, you know, and so we're immune from, from a lot of things. And people come here um, often, like you said, from, from other countries as refugees and settle here. And so there's peace in that sense. But... But without knowing Christ and without, um, you know, knowing the hope of, of the gospel, you know, they're just uh, living the good life, so to speak. Um, and so so why would you go to church? Um, why why would you, you know, even in a post-COVID world, why would you bother to, um, why, why would even some Christians bother to go to church when you can, you know, go online and, and hear a preacher? So the whole, the whole sense of Christianity sort of, um, uh, being under tension, either from those who have been a church attender and no longer interested, or those that are currently in church and they're thinking, are there different ways of doing this? You know, the church really needs to have to get back to to its core core values and and uh, get back to you know who, who we are, uh, because there are massive changes um, afoot. And uh, people are voting with their feet. Yeah. In interesting. So, so you're really experiencing a post-COVID experience, maybe in a more intense way than perhaps here. We, I mean, we have some of this post-COVID here, where people who used to go to church aren't showing up on Sunday, and there's a substantial portion that still say connected online. But, but it sounds like that you're dealing with um, uh, a larger a larger challenge, and, and I wonder how much of that is the ability to produce community in a context where people's lives are so, how can I say this, dispersed in terms of what they're engaged in, that producing community really is an uphill battle. Russell, what do you think? 
Yeah, I think I've travelled around a lot of churches post-COVID. Um, I've preached in Anglican and Baptist and Presbyterian churches uh, and our brethren, our open brethren churches, and I, a lot of them are reflecting on the fact that about a third of the congregation is not back in church and they're not sure they'll ever come back. Um, some of those people have gone to other churches because they experienced online with other churches as well and got to know other communities. So, And then other people have realised that, hey, um, I don't just have to turn up to a physical building, I can have fellowship in a different way. And that's there's some creativity coming out of the post-COVID era, uh, which is positive, but on the negative side, there are people who are drifting. And, uh, you know, I think, there was an opportunity during COVID to be pastorally active, and some churches are better at that than others. Those that weren't active pastorally, uh, I think, have lost people. So there's opportunities there, but there's also been some struggles. So, yeah, we're just still grappling with all of that um, that turmoil. Hmm. So, Richard, what are some of the other challenges churches are facing in New Zealand, and um, you, whether they're distinctive to New Zealand or not? Yeah, so any teaching on on homosexuality is is fraught with uh, landmines. Um, I, I actually think um, the you know my kids' generation and the generation coming up really has a, a different view on 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 the whole um, gay LGBT um, uh, uh, approach and that sort of thing and acceptance. Um, so that's a that's a massive issue. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, to, to the point that I would say that uh, some people are basically maybe offended by how the church community has ha- handled this. And, and if you think about it from a relational perspective, if you're offended by a parent or if you're offended by a family or a group, you know, you're not going to have fun and you're not going to want to show up. And um, and so some of these issues, you know, they they're kind of like, not just they're beneath the surface, they're beneath the carpet, so to speak, but they really need to be explored and, and addressed um, because, um, yeah, that whole whole area of sexuality, which is becoming like this is my identity instead of, you know, part of who we are as human beings has been so dominated by uh, uh, the, uh, the popular culture that people are unable to sort of see their way through it from a biblical, theological and, and, and I take it that the community involvement where churches really pour themselves into serving the community is the best counter to that. Am I, am I reading that right? Yeah. How do, how do you serve um, the community? How do you accept people? You know, it's, it's like a, a new humanity in a sense. How do you show that you're accepting of people, but you're not watering down Christian truth, and yet maybe the way to bring in that truth or to have those conversations is just that as a conversation. Um, um, but you're there, you're present, you're available. Um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell a fun story. When I was a teenager, I, I made my mother cry because <laughs> we there was a protest going down the street once in our town, and a couple of us, you know, grabbed some eggs and we sort of get out there, and we kind of thought, oh, it'd be cool. We'll just We'll just throw the eggs, you know, at that at that group of people that were protesting. And back in those days, you know, um, uh, you know, um, there was no civil unions, and marriage was between a man and a woman. So, you know, things were completely different. Um, you know, that whole approach of um, the tide being turned, and instead of being an antagonist, but being someone that is able to 
walk alongside people, that's a whole new challenge. And, you know, there are there are no simple answers there. There's no simple way forward either. Yeah. yeah. Well, Russell, go ahead. Uh, the, the same report I alluded to before, the McCrindle report, talked about blockers to the Christian faith in New Zealand. And as Richard says, this one, uh, teaching on homosexuality, or even on any gender issues, is really uh, the biggest blockage to people coming to church. And that includes Christians who have sympathy for this group of people who who feel the church is not handling it well. And that's a 36%. That's the highest blocker for people being in church. Hell and condemnation would have been another one, and that would have been high in the 1960s and, and 70s. Um, suffering being 24%. The role of women, 23 and supernatural aspects, 22%. So those are interesting stats. But um, So how we handle this, I think uh, in terms of myself, um, I'm, 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 I'm aware that we need to have our doctrine right and we need to have our teaching correct. And we've, we've got to sort that out. And we send people to places like Dallas to get that sorted out, right? But the, the thing that we want to be able to do, actually, increasingly more I've been understanding the, the teachings of Paul uh, yes, he's got doctrine and he's got way forward there. But when you read him talking about character and attitude, he's talking about posture, which is a, a great word to use. What is our posture with that teaching? And Paul's posture, the way he leaned into things that helped people, and it was so amazing. And uh, I think it's really important that we are uh, we have in our good works and our, our outworking in the community that our posture is leaning into Jesus, but also not antagonistic to those who don't understand things the way we understand them. And so we love them. And this is, of course, the teaching of Jesus, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, to love your enemies and those sorts of things. And that becomes a real issue when we talk about gender issues. Um, so how do we do that? And it's a, it's a tricky balance. Um, yeah, that's probably enough said at this point about that. But that, that's the road we're, we're on at the moment and journeying down. Yeah, the, the term posture is an interesting one. I picked it up uh, the last time I was with you all, and, and uh, you know, we, our word is probably the tone, and the whole point is there's a tension in Christianity between the challenge of Christianity, after all, Christ died on the cross to deal with sin, and the invitation about God's love and God's forgiveness, and getting those in right balance so that, I, I like to say, if, you ha if you're all about condemnation and challenge and not about the invitation and the commitment to God's love and showing God's love, you lose the fact that the gospel actually means good news. Mm. And, and and so you want you want the good news to show forth in the way you care for people and reach out to them, even when their backs are turned to God. I, I remind people, we should never forget where we came from. God approached us when our backs were turned to Him. And so if we remember where we come from, that gives us a better place to think through how we should how we should minister with posture or tone, however you want to describe it. And, and I do think this is becoming the larger challenge for the church today in dealing with a culture that certainly is moving and in some ways moving away from, uh, at least in many parts of the world, the Judeo-Christian roots that it had. And yet at the same time, how do you reclaim people who either think, well, I tasted that and didn't like it, or people who have no clue what Christianity is all about and all they think about is it's it's prejudiced or, or doesn't care for people or that kind of thing. Unless you show a counter to that stereotype, um, you've got to climb uphill. Hmm. I think that's the real challenge of the churches that, that – 
that exists today and what we're facing. Uh, so our time, believe it or not, is gone. Uh, so I want to thank you all for taking the time to give us a glimpse of the church in New Zealand. It's been good to to see you all again, even though it's within the confines of a box. I tell people every now and again I get to get out of the box and see people face to face. And so it's good to reconnect again. I wish you all all the best. I thank you for the time you've taken with us to help uh, help people understand a little bit about what's going on with Christianity in New Zealand. So, Russell, uh, Richard, thank you all very much. Thanks, Daryl. And we thank you for being a part of the table and uh, hope you'll join us again soon. If you want to see other episodes of the table, you can go to voice.dts.edu slash table podcast, where all our uh, more than 500 episodes are present. And we hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to the table podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.